After the year 2020, the Spoiler Room crew thought things were going to cool down. But they are just heating up. Cannon fodder. We're in the shit now. Listen in as this elite group of cinema special forces take on an army of cannon group films. What the hell are we watching? I don't know, but I can't take my eyes off it. Prepare yourself for urban action. Kung Fu action. Action, action. There will be car chases, ninja, and of course, movie spoilers in Cannon Fodder. Happy Fodder's Day. Yes, everyone, we are live here in the spoiler room. So glad you could join us today, everyone. And it is continuing our Don't Fuck with Chuck month. That's right. And it's another cannon fodder episode. This one was also one that was voted on by the listeners like you out there. And yes, we are looking at Missing in Action 2, The Beginning from 1985. Vietnam, 1984. Chuck Norris frees the Americans, missing in action. Now, the secret of his rage can be revealed. Missing in action two, the beginning. A war he couldn't forget. You're going down! Get ready to jump! The story behind his return. Vietnam, 1972. Captured in a savage jungle war. You men are not prisoners of war. You are common criminals. Imprisoned and tortured. He's not dead! God, help! Chuck Norris is a prisoner they couldn't break. And a soldier they couldn't hold. Look, our country has forgotten about us, and we have to do anything we can to survive. There's one chance for escape. That's our way out. He's breaking out. And fighting back. American hero, his story continues. This is for me. Chuck Norris, missing in action two, the beginning. And with me tonight to talk about this interesting sequel is none other than uh, my co-host, right-hand man, and just general gentleman. It is, <laughs> so I'm told, uh, <laughs> reports have yet to be confirmed. It's Ian Simmons, everyone. Hello, Ian. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie with you because... <laughs> I think it's going to be a similar conversation to last week, but also very, very different. different. <laughs> yes, 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 it is. So, uh, as always, uh, because you you are so eloquent and better with words than myself, uh, <laughs> could you please uh, tell our listeners what Missing in Action 2, the beginning, is all about? Well, it's, it's 1985, all right? So, you open up with like a graveyard scene 
and these two guys going up to this like it's raining and there's this really crappy like makeshift grave and they prop it open and there's a corpse inside with a hockey mask no, no, oh, wrong. that's a new beginning. <laughs> that's I'm a sorry. new beginning. No, this is the beginning. Wrong beginning. You got your, you got your beginning. Understandable. No, yeah, no. and about as about as good quality. <laughs> anyway, I'm 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 giving away my hand right off the bat. The <laughs> beginning of the synopsis. Um, all right. So previously in Missing in Action One, we had Chuck Norris as James Braddock, uh, getting out of a long internment in a Vietnam uh, prisoner of war camp. He goes back on a diplomatic mission to rescue people that he knew was back in country. This movie is ostensibly the origin story of his time in that camp. Uh, and essentially his helicopter gets shot down following a rescue mission. Uh, he and a number of other soldiers are in this camp run by um, the evil, I guess, uh, Colonel Yin, uh, played by Soon Tech O. Uh, and they're tortured and they're teased and just, you know, all hope is lost uh, until, spoiler alert, uh, Jim Braddock uh, breaks free and goes on a one-man mission against the tyrannical Vietnamese colonel soldiers. Anyway, <laughs> that's uh, Mission in Action to the beginning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This I'll just say this is the movie that I was expecting, expecting. Mission and Action One to be, and I think if this you know because this is the prequel, I think if the prequel had come out first, mm -hmm. I think it would have done fine because it's a Chuck Norris action movie. But then you have the sequel, which is like he's you know Braddock is back in America and then he wants to go back. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been pretty amazing because it's a huge step backwards from part one down to part two as far as the messaging, as far as the exploitative elements, uh, as far as everything, even the, the consistency, like this is not a prequel to Missing in Action 1 because nothing lines up at all, except for the fact that Chuck Norris was in a Vietnamese prison camp. Funny you should mention that. I've got uh -oh. a little tidbit with that first. Did you uh, read the book finally? I did read the book. The, I did read the <laughs> chapter on it right here, folks. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980 to 1984. Yes, I am shamelessly plugging it because it has a whole chapter, a, a long chapter dedicated to Missing in Action trilogy, plus a great interview with, and I didn't, I, I enjoyed it even though the guy is from Milwaukee. That's not the reason, the only reason why I enjoyed it. But James Bruner, who's from Wisconsin, who wrote the script for Missing in Action, they do a great interview with him, and it's really crazy, the story behind this movie, these two movies. Um, if, if you'll indulge me a little, I could give you a little background. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got to talk about something. This, right? this, <laughs> that's that, Missing in Action 2 is that's not it. In this book, and there's a reason why I keep bringing this book up, folks. I will announce it at the end of the episode. Ha! Let me keep it. <laughs> keep you hanging on suspense anyway funny thing is that um so chuck norris was actually looking at doing a film called missing in action and james uh, bruner uh wrote the script for missing in action initially but that script that they were farming around they were having a hard time getting made well, Chuck Norris ended up meeting with Canon, and I'm paraphrasing. You have to read the book to find all the details, because I'm I'm sure I'm probably gonna f 
fuck some of this up. Anyway, um, anyway, James Brewer, uh, um, he got input from Chuck Norris in that, and uh, he wrote the script, and and they weren't behind it. But uh, Cannon had another script that happened to be called Missing in Action. Chuck Norris didn't realize that was the script Cannon wanted him to do, and not the original Missing in Action oh, no. script. <laughs> that they had written but they offered him a good chunk of money and canon being canon they basically faced chuck norris who's a big star at this time right then and there said you got to make a decision right now they had him read the script while they were there and said yes or no you got to say it right now otherwise we you know if you say no that's it you can't come back to it later so chuck of course said yes because it, it's money <laughs> so they um and and Bruner, but they still paid Bruner for the script. He's like, okay, you know, whatever. Um, so they they shot a completely different script. <laughs> they did rewrites in that. Um, but he, he, as Bruner said, it, hey, I still got money, but but still, it would have been nice to have that. They were liking what they were shooting so much, and I alluded to this kind of in our previous episode that they called Bruner up to come and write the sequel before, and they were going to shoot it right after they were done shooting missing in action so bruner came down wrote it it went through some rewrites they took that film and they shot it and they liked that film better than the first film so canon in their wisdom swapped the releases of the film so missing in action the one that we reviewed last week mm -hmm. is actually originally intended to be the second film missing in action. The beginning was the film they were going to release first, but they loved the second film so much. They retooled it called that missing in action. They took this film that was going to be first and called it the beginning and made it a prequel. So, they, so missing in action two was technically the first movie. Yes, just not this missing in action two. The the movie that you we saw, which is called Missing in Action, which is Canon's like second biggest box office ever, one of mm -hmm. uh, Norris's biggest blockbusters uh, for this company. This is huge. They made like twenty two point three million dollars domestically in nineteen eighty five for a company that wasn't a big studio. That's huge. Okay. Yeah. So that film was going to be the second film. And the one we're talking about tonight was going to be the first film. But the producers, in their infinite wisdom, liked that film better. And so they swapped the release dates. Wow. Because they had two different directors. There was Joseph Zito on the right. quote-unquote second one, which is right. technically the first. And now we've got Lance Hull doing this the one i mean uh, the second one yeah, yeah i oh it's too late for me to do to fully unpack this math but i mean it's i guess i'm kind of relieved in a way but it's just such a bad movie I <laughs> <laughs> two two is is if they would have led with this a lot of people have speculated if they would have led with missing in action what's now called missing in action to the beginning had they led with this if this was actually going to be the first film they figure it would have never been that huge. But the the one that James Bruner 
wrote and retooled uh, was the one they fell in love better with. And so they released that one first and that was smart. And Bruner would actually go on to write uh, the Delta Force movie mm. and he would write uh, Braddock Missing in Action 3. So, okay. So there's, well, <laughs> I was pulling up IMDb in preparation mm -hmm. for this show and I made the mistake of, I was just curious because after watching this movie, uh -huh. I'm like, what the hell are they going to do for part three? And then I read the synopsis. I don't know if you've seen Braddock missing in action three, but the, the tagline IMDb says Braddock mounts a wait for it. One man assault. To free his wife and son who are still being held in a Vietnamese prison camp. Okay, so what? <laughs> they don't care about continuity at all with these damn movies. Fun fact. Um, I was organizing, and I'm. this is linked up. Don't worry, I'm get, I'll get there. Uh, <laughs> I was organizing the videos in the back. I've alphabeticalized, uh, alphabetized, whatever. I, all of these, <laughs> they're in order, okay? Most of them, 99%, they're in alphabetical order. And I found I have a lot of duplicates, but I also found stuff that I didn't realize I had. One, I've got far more Chuck Norris movies than I thought I did. And I found this treasure, Chuck Norris American Hero Collection on right. DVD. It has Delta Force, Delta Force 2, and all three missing in action films. Nice. <laughs> I didn't even know I had this. I went on HBO Max to watch the first Missing in Action because I'm like, oh, I don't I don't think I've got this film. And then when I was cleaning up and organizing my DVD, I go like, what's this? What's on the back? Oh, shit. Look at that. All three Missing in Action actually, films. <laughs> I don't know if that's out of print or what, but I think I saw that on Amazon and it was really expensive. That's why I bought the, the Blu-ray <laughs> of like, it's got Delta Force and the first two yeah. Missing in Actions. Um, the, I, I think I'm gonna have to go on find uh, Braddock by other means, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be the, ready for next week. The, the the box isn't in the best condition, but yeah, I've discovered I had this. I'm like, oh, and this isn't like that's awesome. This isn't even like you know, uh, one of those owl net whatever you know, like third party re-release. This is actually an MGM Sony Pictures home video release. Um, <laughs> so I was like, holy crap. Okay, uh, so, so back to the film. Yes, folks. Um, missing in action, the beginning. Yeah, it wasn't a story that we needed because it is the prequel. It, it's trying to lead you up to the events of why Braddock is a badass and, and how he saved the guys, uh, you know, that, that he became famous for. Uh, there's there's problems with the timeline in this film first off <laughs> all right now the film opens with what happens to braddock uh and how his team got captured they end up taking the, a, hel a helicopter and they're on patrol and they go to try to rescue some guys and the pilots are killed and uh good old chuck norris is wearing and i'm calling him chuck norris it's yeah, you know who he is. Anyway, James Braddock <laughs> is wearing his best Australian Outback hat. Um, <laughs> I prefer to think he's he's kind of got the Robert Duvall in uh, Apocalypse Now thing going on. Yeah, kind of, kind of. So he comes out, and yeah, their helicopter gets shot down, and that's how they get captured. Now we then get credits. Fast forward to uh, eighty four. 
So this happened in like 74, supposedly, or 70, you know, early 70s, like 73, 74, that his helicopter went down. So we, we forward ahead to a clip where we've got actual news clip from real life, Ronald Reagan's yes. news clip of when they did the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and they talked about those who were missing in action. Um, and so then we cut to the camp where... Braddock and his buddies are being held and it it's supposed to be 10 years later but it really doesn't feel like it well I think the and this is where the continuity sort of lines up with the first missing in action which right. is technically the second but I'm not going to get back don't, into don't, that don't get back into that um, <laughs> because Braddock mentioned that he had been in that camp for like eight or 10 years. Right. And then when missing in action one picks up, he'd only been out. He escaped like a year earlier. Right. So it kind of makes sense that if he got captured in 73 or 74, that it could fast forward to 1984. And just because they're in the deep jungles of Vietnam, that things haven't really changed. The, the, yeah. the most that you get of modernity is you've got <laughs> Francois, the French opium, dealer and gun runner flying in on his you know helicopter, helicopter and i guess yeah. he's got a private jet or something later i uh so yeah i mean i i get it i just i think the idea is that they're so far deep in the jungle that people still kind of figure the war is going on and right. and it's because there's no connection to modernity mm -hmm. that the vietnamese prison camp runners are able to keep the prisoners under right. that guys they have no sense of like how many years have passed or you know who's fighting who if anybody's fighting anybody and mm. they do a little bit of that dialogue you know in the in the movie because they're trying to talk about like people are coming who's coming well the, the war is over no one's looking for us and are you sure and it's it's beautiful mind trickery i mean mm -hmm. disgusting but uh I almost wish they'd focused more on that than the other nonsense they got going on. <laughs> yeah, with Mazzilli, who was one of the, the survivors of uh, Braddock's group, who, I guess for me, they didn't look 10 years old. <laughs> it, it, it didn't feel like they were actually in that camp for 10 years. The way they had been talking and some of the conversations they had, I'm like, please tell me you guys weren't having this exact same conversation for the last 10 years. Because <laughs> if you watched other war pictures or other you know even vietnam pictures the discussions they have about their personal life while well, i didn't get a chance to see my wife or my kids or whatnot i understand they don't have any time frame of how long it's been but at the same time they're talking like they've only been there a few years you know the way the dialogue's written when they've been there 10 years and they're still having the conversation of oh i I, you know, you haven't even had a chance to see your kids yet. I did before I left, but they don't mention, well, now my kid's 10 years older or my kids, whatever. I mean, you know. Well, and I think, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think part of that, and again, I think a smarter movie might've explored this a bit, but you know, when you're stuck in that situation, you're traumatized, your, your, your mm. brain trauma is sort of stuck in amber in that mode because yeah. his kid, I don't think he had been born or he had just been born yeah. or something. He hadn't gotten to see him cause he was, you know, not stateside. So he's probably thinking of his kid as being a baby. Mm -hmm. He probably, there's a part of him that wishes that when he goes back to the States, he could see a baby. So he won't miss out on his kid growing up and, and all those right. memories. I, I, but I get what you're saying. I was relieved that when I heard this as a prequel, we kind of joked about this last week that, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to like lighten Chuck 
Norris's beard or something to make him look younger or what, but they actually set it so that it's only a year, really, most of the action before the first movie. So he right. can still look old and, mm -hmm. and haggard. And I think he did. They did a hell of a job making him look pretty beat up and, and jungle weary <laughs> in this movie. They did. All the guys felt jungle weary. You felt the heat. I mean, uh, the set and the production design, they're basically using the same camp scene, camp uh, set that we saw in uh, <laughs> Missing in Action, you know, uh, you know, when they had the uh, rescuing the uh, the new Americans who are still missing in action. Uh, it's pretty much the same camp. I, You know, I'll take your word on that. But like in that opening scene it just felt like they were in Southern California or something. It didn't seem very jungly. I'm like, no. well, I've never been to Vietnam, but every Vietnam movie I've seen looks more like, you know, it looks like Predator looks more like Vietnam than what was going on here. Well, it, especially in the beginning, because you got the helicopter, they're going into rescue, which this Huey's got missiles on it. And the soldiers, the, the, the Viet Cong soldiers are all on a ridge. And I'm like, okay, just strafe them down with your missiles. <laughs> but they yeah. only fire missiles twice before a crack shot shoots the pilot. That's after they rescue the last few guys on the ground. Um, and then we get this whole suicide squad type of thing where they're in the helicopter. And as they're jumping out, we get their name. And then this big boom, M.I.A. Um, and I was just thinking about how that makes so much more sense if this is going to be the first movie. Right. Because it's like missing in action. I'm like, I'm watching the sequel, which is the prequel. I'm like, yeah, we kind of covered this in the <laughs> beginning. But but if it's just MIA, like all over the place. And yeah, this, this makes more sense because this is supposed to be the missing in action movie. Right. But when they're jumping out of the helicopter for there's a close up shot of them jumping out of the helicopter. It's obvious the helicopter's on against a blue screen that's supposed to be a blue sky that you're supposed to jump out. Because when he says, quick, jump, you know, jump out and and. You could tell it was it was not part of the the state. They weren't anywhere near the air. <laughs> I I don't know. I I bought every second of it. <laughs> but yeah, they jump out of the helicopter credits and all that, and so it's an interesting opening and it's an interesting setup. You get the characters. You you're you know, I think one of the things that for me watching it again because it's been a while since I watched it is Vietnam films got into full swing just after the, you know, missing action. It sounds weird, but it was, it got the jump on the trend of Vietnam films that we got into the last half of the eighties. Um, and you look at the formula for this one and it so hits that basic tropish formula that you got out of every other Vietnam bigger budgeted, Vietnam film. I mean, the characters that you had, you had the one guy who has a pet chicken and, you know, <laughs> that you know is going to die. You're like, he or the chicken is going to die at the end, which, which it does, you know. And they're, they're representations of different, uh, you know, uh, different people in different, uh, you know, whatever classes, whatever, you know, you've got a ver your, your variety of different people who are all soldiers, all sharing the same experience. And each one of their characters is kind of cliche to what we've seen in other Vietnam films. And I think that's the one thing that was kind of getting me with the second one is like, okay, we've seen this guy before. We've seen this character before. Guess I know what's going to happen next. Yep, sure enough. You know, the <laughs> evil soldier. 
um, who I, in all honesty, I, I, I did enjoy the performance of Soon Tech Ho, uh, Oh, in this is Colonel Yin. I, I did like the Colonel Yin character quite a bit. Yeah. I liked his performance. It's a great, per- not, not, it's a great performance. Not yeah, the way yeah, it was I'll, written. I'll, I'll, <laughs> right. And I think that it's, it's something you got to se- separate. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of unfortunate because kind of like we were talking about in the last movie where you've got, you know, these Chuck Norris wandering through the shanty town with the you know, prostitutes everywhere. You just think about like the making of this movie. Like if they're filming it on location, it's like, yeah, we want you to dance around and just be half naked whores. Like, what does that say about like what we think of you? Um, so I just, I wonder like, was there any conflict there about playing just like this one dimensional you know, Vietnamese mm-hmm. uh, bad guy. And uh, the other thing is, I don't, you know, this is going to sound really weird, but, you know, I know not all Asian cultures and Asian people are the same. So I've, I've seen a few of these actors in other films. I don't know if any of them are actually Vietnamese or if they're just, if they're Chinese or, or whatever, mm-hmm. but there's just some of that. I just had this nagging thing that it was the early to mid 80s and you're like oh there's an asian guy just have him play the vietnamese camp commander you know uh it just these weird little things that bug me especially now well and and this series has uh been accused of uh jangoism and the misportrayal of you know nationalities and so i mean it's got a bad it, it has gotten controversy for their portrayal though in this in this film, they do tr- you can see they're trying not to say this is all the Viet Cong. It's just this camp and this particular general who's being the way he is. Versus the uh, first one, in which they were kind of more p- painting a broader brush of Vietnam and the people running Vietnam. And they they had we talked about the serious scene where they had the oppressed villagers show up and lie about Braddock killing kids and civilians and they kind of take that approach here i think or they were trying to we don't get an outside world perspective really so it's hard to say but in this camp we do have vietnamese who are also prisoners at this camp at least that's what i gathered that they were also vietnamese so they were trying i think to portray that we're not saying all vietnamese are like this doing it poorly and in the end it's still is like, well, you're still portraying, you know, you're still coming across as saying, yeah, the Vietnamese are the bad guys and America's good guys. Um, but I think they tried to paint that line, you know, thread that needle. I, I'll i agree that they may have tried, but, you know, there was so much more nuance in the first missing right. in action as far as, as what you're talking about, like the, the, the wider scope of the country mm-hmm. and America's involvement with that conflict. In this one, it is just and that's why it makes so much more sense that this is kind of the first movie because it's a bad, it, you know, even, you know, James Braddock is he, he's more of the monosyllabic, like just stare at people <laughs> and, and not really talk except to say, you know, I'm going after Ho or, you know, if I'm not back in 24 hours, you know, that kind of yeah. you know, cliche nonsense. He's just a killing machine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's. There's just I don't like the we get the the captain, the colonel and his henchmen in the first movie, different actors, different circumstances, because, of course, the colonel in this movie gets blown up in the hut at the end (laughs) after a hand to hand combat, which I don't. Can we just jump to the end for a second? Sure, Um, sure. All right. 
let me get this straight. They've been in this camp for 10 years. Mm-hmm. They've killed a whole lot of people and a lot of their number have been, you know, they've been decimated essentially. A few of them managed to get a helicopter and fly away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yin has been, they think he's been blown up, but he's not. He's the last survivor. He gets up, he sees the helicopter flying away. And all of a sudden Chuck Norris is standing behind him mm-hmm. and they have this hand-to-hand combat. At the end, Chuck Norris walks up a hill to the helicopter. What was that conversation like? Hey, guys, I know we're barely escaping with our lives. There's a good chance that there's some survivors here who have radios that could call in for reinforcements, and they could come and outnumber us and kill us. Can you just wait on top of that hill so I can enact my personal vendetta against this guy who we could just leave in the jungle to die and never hear from him again? Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Good luck. I, there's absolutely no chance that you could get killed or injured and we could just be waiting here sitting ducks. Uh, go for it, Jim. Well, you know, by this time, I think they're just like, okay, whatever. Uh, they they trust Braddock because he just saved them. So Mazzelli yeah. really wants to see his kid. He's not going to hang around. <laughs> He'd be like, no. Well, no, he was ha- do that. He was hanging around because we had a couple of soldiers uh, who caught him because we get this wonderful... So to set it up, folks, the first the first 40 minutes are Vietnamese soldiers putting our guys through various torture, which if you've watched other Vietnam films after that came out after this, you've seen this before. I mean, none of these tactics and they're tactics that have been told they're that proven that these were tactics that were used in prisoner of war camps. I am not downplaying that at all. I'm just saying that. The first chunk of this film is the setup of making the soldiers and the bad guys really bad guys so that it justifies later on Braddock going through and torching them. So because Yin at one point tortures uh, literally uh, one of Braddock's men after he gets um, who's there's a one of the guys has been suffering from malaria. We figure it's malaria. And he's been sicker and sicker, and soon he can't work at the camp anymore. He's about to die. The Yin, for 10 years, Yin has been writing Braddock to confess that he's a war criminal. Okay. And he's being the stout soldier and saying no. And completely understand they set it up, you know, okay, got that. No problem. Then his buddy gets malaria. He's going to die. They trust Yin to give their buddy... The uh, uh, antidote, you know, um, anti, yeah, for malaria, give him the cure for malaria if Braddock signs it. So Braddock finally signs after 10 years to save his buddy, which is noble. But at the same time, I'm like, you've been around this general for 10 years and you're trusting him to inject your buddy with what you think is the cure for malaria. And you sign before you you find out if your buddy's healthy or not. You know what I mean? I mean, even for their characters, that part kind of was the head scratcher. It was like up until that point, okay. But these are the guys who've been torturing you for 10 years with all the psychological stuff. And I understand your buddy's dying, but at the same time, suddenly you trust Yin to do the right thing? It's a sloppy bridge to get to one of the more tasteless scenes in this movie. There's plenty of tasteless scenes in this movie, but you know, it's the guy um, who was dying of malaria. The shot he gets is actually an overdose of opium. 
So he like shoots up and he's all delirious and he's feeling great all of a sudden, but then he kind of collapses. And Yen at this point has Braddock put into the paddock uh, within eyeshot of this, what turns out to be a funeral pyre. They take the opium overdose guy out, dose him in gasoline. Yen lights a like a barbecue torch and sets him on fire. So he's watching his friend get burned alive. Yep. That's horrible. But it is to what you were saying, part of that first 40 minutes, you know, carrying over to the other part of the movie, because like the last half hour of this thing is like the revenge mission where Braddock gets free and just starts killing everybody. Right. Uh, but it is just meant to say, oh, these, you know, these evil camp people, I really hate them. I want to get the audience to hate them so they can have that rah, rah, you know, mm-hmm. go Braddock, go America bullshit at the end. You know, it's just so one dimensional you don't get a whole lot of these characters, the versions of these characters in the first missing action, but because you've got the wider context. And we talked about this last week. You can understand that this is a war in which an invading occupying force came into their country. And so they're fighting back. So you can kind of put yourself in their place. It's like, yeah, if, if the, the, the Vietnamese came and invaded America and we were forced to you know, fight people in our streets and villages and stuff and they were torturing people, yeah, we'd fight back and we'd probably be as vicious as hell. Mm-hmm. But in this, you the war is over, so you just get the idea that these are just sadistic, cartoonishly sadistic, you know, single-track people. What is Yin? Does he have a family? What's the political structure, the business structure that he's working under? What does he really want? Can he afford, like, what's the economy? Can they afford to just be that cruel and hang out and torture prisoners and being ha- paid to hold on to these people? Well, nothing makes sense. Well, he's got that opium business because he's in league with Francois and they're running opium and weapons. Right. You know. But I, but I'm wondering, is the greater Vietnamese government unaware of what he's doing? Are they in, you know, are they in cahoots? That's... You know, there's, there's. I just I can't believe that he's got this little fiefdom out in the jungle that's been going on for a decade and you know he's just allowed to do whatever he wants. Maybe that's the case, but I'm more interested in that story than just like ha 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 I, I really want you to sign this confession you won't do it. So I'm going to stand here and torture you for 10 years. Yeah, that's that, it's where you mentioned sloppy, especially considering the first one. And we talked about the first one. The first one was an equal balance of just the cheesy canon action we're always used to, but also moments and sections that gave you ideas to motivation, how things were going to be. Nothing too deep, but still, it, there was more meat there than you expected. Here, there is no real meat. We don't know. I got the impression that... He was on his own generally, you know, like Yin had this camp on his own and that possibly the Vietnamese, some of the Vietnamese government may have known about it, but just chose to ignore it. I, I'm i not sure because it's never set up. We just know that it's 10 years later and they still got the uh, soldiers in the camp and they're running it like it was still 1970, you know, 1970, basically 1971. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a head scratching of, well, wait, is it because there's no dialogue, there's no illusion that this, that even those in control of the camp have whatever connection to the outside world outside of Francois who brings in hookers and blow. Um, yeah, well, he does. That's, that's I mean, redundant, by the way. I, <laughs> insert that yes okay depending on how you look at it but anyway they don't really set that up so it it is you're right more one-dimensional here that we get this um they're they're very caricatures 
everything's caricature in this. I mean, not just the bad guys, but our good guys as well. You mentioned Braddock, who's got plot armor, who <laughs> who just, you know, you understand his motivation watching them, you know, torch his, uh, a good a friend of his alive, which is horrible. Don't get me wrong. It's horrible. And that's what triggers him. At the same time, that also gave me a bit of a head scratching, though, because I was counting guards and I was figuring out prisoners. <laughs> And I understand the whole psychological warfare thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm very sensitive to the fact that they were using psychological warfare on these guys forever. But at the same time, I'm looking at this going, now Braddock chooses to escape because he's the guy with the most skills, apparently, this colonel. We, and he proves it. He's a one-man wrecking crew that goes through and takes out most of the guys at the camp for the most part until at the very end where he gets some help. I'm like, you chose, you waited till now to go all, pardon me, Rambo, which he's wearing a Rambo outfit at one point in this film. Um, yeah. You know, I, I guess that was a little head scratcher for me. And I know it's a dumb, it's an action film, but especially compared to the first one and compared to the potential you see here with this, you're like, they went this empty route to where even thinking just lightly about it, I'm like 10 years and you haven't, done what you did you haven't coordinated some other escape plan you know it's it's just an ill you know the origin of or the beginning of this conversation it all makes sense that this movie was supposed to be the first and then they made the better version of this movie <laughs> which has no continuity between it because if you think about it this movie should be dull and impossible mm -hmm. because what you've got is you've got chuck norris looking like Chuck Norris and acting like Chuck Norris, but he's been in this Vietnamese prison camp for 10 years. Realistically, he would look more like the four guys that Braddock rescued at the end of the first missing in action. Right. You know, they were lean. They were very clearly soldiers, but they were lean. They were paranoid. They were squirrely. They could, they could just pick up their guns and you get the feeling that they were running on pure adrenaline. But you know, unless Braddock is sneaking away to do like secret crunches and Tai Chi or whatever, you know, get protein shakes, he's not going to look like that after, you know, being in a prison camp. Well, they did work the guys pretty hard. That's a lot of physical labor. So you could build up, you know, you, you build up muscle uh, from doing all that work, you know. Right. But they're also um, being starved. I imagine they're, well, you know, they're, they're survived. They're subsisting on like maybe right. rice and water, if that. And and that's wherein I had the slight problem with this of continuity wise because none of the characters seemed like they were in the dire straits that they were in. And again, I'm I'm not making light of actual situation. I'm talking about within the context of the film, these characters mm -hmm. for what they went through, you're right, look like they just hopped out of the helicopter last year. They don't look like they've been run through the ringer the last 10 years. And that's why I had a little problem with the time frame with this. I'm like looking at them and even the way they're acting and how they've still kept it together. On one hand, you're going great. They're strong soldiers. This is how resilient they are. And thanks to Braddock's leadership, they've been able to hold their sanity, but we're talking 10 years of the psychological warfare, including grabbing a random guy saying he's being commit. He's being, condemned for crimes against uh the vietnamese government and war atrocities 
an empty gun and they pull the trigger twice on the guy's head as if he's going to die. And given the past experience, they think this could be it. And it freaks about and it breaks this guy. And you're like, they've been doing this type of psychological warfare for so long, yet the way, excuse me, the way their characters are behaving, they aren't as you would expect. And on one hand, like I said, maybe they're trying to say resilience. On the other hand, you're expecting these guys to have a little bit more going on with them than what it, what we see. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. Like that whole, I'll call it the Vietnamese roulette thing, because it's not mm-hmm. quite Russian roulette, because that's a fear tactic. The, the, the gun is just empty. They're just trying right. to scare people. It feels like they just invented that today. You know, whereas the I imagine in this scenario, it's something that they would have been through a lot, you know, over the course of a decade. Um, you know, some of the torture is made out to be I could just see this. And it's probably been memed at some point because Chuck Norris is a legend now. Uh, but when they tie Braddock up and hang upside down and then put the rat in the sack and then tie that to his head it's a whole struggle of like everyone thinks he's dying because the there's blood appearing in the sack and Mm -hmm. they take it off and it turns out Braddock is such a badass that he grabbed the rat with a few scratches on his face uh and he basically chewed his head halfway off so they they take the cloth off and he's got the rat's body dangling out of his mouth like yeah that's haha but there's just so much of that like badassness that's you know dumb action movie stuff that's in a movie that's about a really serious issue that right the first the quote-unquote first movie handled a lot more tastefully i could i could handle the dumb action stuff like him sneaking onto that embassy compound and getting the general in the bed i could buy that because i knew that the rest of the movie had its heart in the right place this movie's heart is in the garbage I I guess I would be uh, say garbage, but yeah, it's it's misplayed. It's definitely misguided. It's it's yeah, it, it's a serious subject, and we have you know I mean, we've seen the Rambo films, but even then, the Rambo films uh, I, I, up until like his uh, until he was taking on Russians with a bow and arrow, um, you know, the first two were handled more serious. They were action films, but they were handled bit more serious and like you said the first film actually handles this with equal parts seriousness and cheesiness whereas this is just so cliche dumb action yet they're also trying to present the atrocities of vietnam and we've seen other vietnam films and i know i keep bringing it up but it's just true within the context of watching it now um you see how this is and even back then kind of mishandling the subject matter i mean Mm. you, you know within the context of the film. I mean, the flashback scenes we got in the first film handled it more serious than the scenes we get that are supposed to be the events taking place, you know, like the scene where Braddock gets his stomach cut by the guy who he later sees as part of the the government in Vietnam in the first one. That that scene with him getting cut is actually handled with some weight. It's handled with some emotion. We see Braddock kind of helpless and getting toward and that's all you needed and in here where you would think you would get more of that it's just handled in such an action way though there are still some serious parts at one point an australian reporter shows up to take pictures 
he is the least stealthiest guy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which was worse in this film: the soldiers who are on watch in quotes because they're missing people in plain sight, or the stealthy reporter who's pretty much out there with his camera taking pictures pretty much out in the open not even looking around to see if there's guards coming towards him or anything he's also um, he's also out in vietnam in the jungle wearing shorts yes yes so how far out were they because he he went how far in shorts in the vietnamese jungle um i don't know i, I actually liked this character um you know for the five minutes he's on screen because it's an interesting idea you know he shows up he gets captured you know uh because he's not slick at all uh but he gets taken into the camp and he's talking to yin he's like you know i've got a homing device i'm part of this you know international organization that's here to find you know you know prisoners of war so if i don't report in yada 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 and you're like oh this is getting really interesting like because he's like there's an option you know you could turn yourself over to me you could cut and run or you could wait here and there's the cavalry is going to come and wipe you all out I'm like, I would like to see any of those options. But of course, Yin kind of turns the tables on him and says, well, here's the option where I just kill you and we take our chances or I throw you in prison. He throws the guy in prison. Guy gets into prison. And he's like, everyone's like, we're going home. And he's like, no, I just made all that up just well, so I could buy myself some time. Nobody's coming. And I'm like, this is, you know, really kind of cool. And then mm -hmm. Francois shows up and Emerson finally starts to panic. He's like, that's the one guy who can finger me and say you know he's full of crap and sure enough that does happen uh so yeah i it's a bit of it's what passes for dimension in this movie plus i really i don't know who the actor was but i just kind of liked his his demeanor and i was kind of sad to see him go <laughs> the actor is christopher carey and christopher... jim jim carey's brother i don't know who that is. no <laughs> christopher carey who some Marvel fans out there may recognize as being from a Captain America movie from 1979, Captain America 2, Death Too Soon. He played Professor Ian Ilson in it. He was also in the Wonder Woman TV series for a couple episodes. So, mm. And where I recognize him one was from Sword and the Sorcerer, where he plays King Richard. Uh, so that's where I recognized him from. So... <laughs> He, he's a veteran actor. I, I like this character quite a bit. And this is the scene that I was thinking of. I had it misplaced as far as the setting. I kept thinking, I don't know why. Maybe it was a childhood trauma because I did watch this when I was 10 years old. Hey, it's the <laughs> 80s. Okay. We've talked about it before. Anyway, um, there is probably one of the better squib gimmicks I've seen in any film, action film or otherwise in this. They're doing the bullet thing with one of the soldiers and it's obviously an empty gun. Well, once Emerson gets fingered, they do the gun thing again. They get him up on the, the platform. He says, you've atrocities against the Vietnam government. You've got the one guy who then yells from the, don't worry, it's empty. Boom. No, the gun isn't empty. And they cut, they do a smash, like this hard cut to him just as the gun goes off. And this is where I was kind of talking about it last week. His, the, the the flap of his head flies up like he gets it's one of the more impressive yes disturbing but more impressive headshots i've seen in any movie and you have it in this canon film in all honesty it's not extraordinarily bloody but just a close-up of his head 
and the side of it, you know what I mean? I well, yeah, and the, the what was more impressive, I think, for me was the actor's reaction, right? Because it's not the typical like his eyes just roll back in his head and he falls over. It's that look of shock, mm-hmm. like he his brain just you know has been Exited, turned to yeah. mush, but it, there's a part of him that's still catching up to that fact, and he's like just looks like oh, and he's wow. staring into the camera too and that's the thing yeah I mean, so it's it's eerie it, it is that's that's the thing and that's why one of those that's one of the scenes that stuck with me and i'm like here you have a film which we've already alluded to i found some entertainment in it don't get me wrong it dumb action film so it's got those elements but at the same time compared especially to the first film we watch it is the lesser film so mm-hmm. you've got this ridiculous, more one-dimensional stuff with very less weight to it going on, even from the torture. Uh, but then you get this one moment in here that's actually very eerie and sticks with you and and serious. And it's like, where the hell did this come from suddenly? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and to, to what you had just said, I, there were parts... I'm conflicted about this movie because right. it's the lesser film, but I was entertained by parts of it. We haven't really talked about Stephen Williams as yes. uh, was a Captain Nestor. Yep, I wanted. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, who I was gonna bring him next. was the guy that was being rescued in the beginning by Braddock in the helicopter? Uh, he ends up turning, you know, for in the name of self-preservation, uh, turning himself over to Yin and being like his right-hand man liaison to the American POWs. I think there's a really fascinating movie hidden somewhere in here because I kept thinking about this character and why he was doing what he was doing beyond self-preservation. I thought, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, this is like 19, the the war happened, it ended in 75. Let's just mm-hmm. say they got captured in 72 or 73. They have no concept of time. So this is someone who's still very much living through the conflicts of the civil rights era right. and the Vietnam with like mm-hmm. lots of young, poor black soldiers and poor people of every ethnicity getting drafted, going mm-hmm. over there. He may have seen this opportunity in the middle of hell to exert some authority that he probably couldn't find back home in a certain sense uh, and a way to buy time. So I was like, I would like to see a drama about that where, cause he kind of has heroic moments uh, or a noble moment towards the end uh, where he turns on Yin and takes some people out before he gets horribly shot. But I was just thinking about that. I'm like making a more interesting movie in my head while this bland piece of crap is playing out in front of me. <laughs> but I also really like Stephen Williams. I saw the conflict in him. He's not as one dimensional as Yin is, which is kind of unfortunate, but yeah, I got some drama, some pathos in this thing. Yeah, and again, there is some entertainment in here, and I think some of the best scenes work with Williams and interaction, especially with Braddock, uh, which I don't know if you caught it, but you're you're a rapper in the making because you said Braddock and Paddock, and so your <laughs> Braddock was in the paddock. Um, but <laughs> eating some haddock is that eating a fish? Some haddock, know. yeah, it is. A, it is a fish. But anyway, uh, some of the best scenes were between Stevens Stephen Williams and Chuck Norris, or Stephen just his character. David Nestor with the POW soldiers. I I liked those moments and those moments again were bits and glimpses. And I would love to see that movie following his character 
almost more so than the characters in the prison because he is a guy who still is giving them supplies because we haven't talked about Captain Ho either, who is a Vietnamese uh, uh, soldier who's also a POW, who is the doctor of the POWs. And he and Nestor have this relationship where Nestor gets some supplies occasionally. It sneaks them. Yin mm -hmm. knows Nestor is doing it, but, and that's all a part of the control that Yin is trying to put in. He's trying to seem like, oh, I don't see them taking the Perrier water. And Nestor <laughs> is like, okay, I'll take the Perrier water. And he gives them the whole, and then everybody thinks Nestor is still at least being a little bit on the inside, getting them sneaking supplies to them. Um, so that's an interesting angle with his character too. And I loved the Captain Ho character quite a bit. That's another character I would have loved to follow more of because he he was interesting. I, I, I knew there was more there. I'm like, I want to see more about him. Where did he come from? How did he get there? You know? Well, well that's, that's exactly, you know, my problem with his character is I really, I literally don't know where he came from yeah. because when we go, when we go to the camp, we see the American soldiers and all of a sudden there's this random guy, you know, he's the one with glasses, you know, yeah. so to differentiate him <laughs> from everybody else who's apparently a prisoner, like what was his deal? Like how did he come to befriend these guys? I guess that's a story that happened over the course of the previous decade, but like take out, the cool guys with the flamethrowers on the bridge and give me five minutes of introducing Ho properly. Um, and and then, again, that it's funny because Joseph Zito directed the first missing action, but there's some straight up exploitative stuff in this movie that I would have expected from Joseph Zito. Like the early scene where they're establishing, oh, there's a bridge that no one will ever get across <laughs> because it's so well guarded. Yes. And so to have an illustration of that, you have an American POW escape. He cuts and runs to the jungle, comes to this bridge. And it turns out there's a guy with a flamethrower. And we see, first of all, a young Vietnamese prisoner who also escapes. He gets ran through with an Indiana Jones style, you know, quartet of spikes. And we Man get to trap, see him yeah. die horribly. Yeah, we, he dies horribly. We see the guy with the flamethrower. Look, these are movies about Vietnamese soldiers and American prisoners of war. This is, and I understand we're talking about the mission missing in action sequel, but to have the scene where the guy is like on fire and he's screaming, oh no, oh no. And then he falls off the bridge down a waterfall. It's almost comical but it's also meant to be a badass action movie i'm like no this is a sad end to a tragic life like what am i watching here yeah the the there's as we mentioned before the, the weight is gone from that action and the scene is not your what the setup is supposed to be like a actual like action scene it's not like a you know like you're normally seeing it's a one guy just trying to make it through you know and he gets torched alive i mean that's actually that's pretty dang serious and intense never mind the fact you're trying to torch the guy on a ro uh, bridge made of wood and weed rope um and you better get out there with a fire extinguisher because even though you've got good aim with the flamethrower there, that bridge was partly on fire. Now, later on, Braddock says, fuck it, I'm just going to torch the whole bridge um, <laughs> in, in Braddock's style. Uh, but this first scene is supposed to... You can see they are intending it to be 
something more than just your cheesy action film. There, there's supposed to be weight to it, but it's handled like a lot of things that we've talked about tonight, haphazardly and, and you know, to where they may have had this intention, but it does not come off like that. It comes off as you've been either comical or empty for the most part. You know, I mean, it it doesn't have that weight that a situation that you're putting these characters in should really have, whether or not it's an action film or not. Because you could still have your action film with Braddock blowing shit up at the end, but you could still put more serious handled moments like this, do it better, and still have those moments of weight, I think, in it, and still have the explosions at the end. Yeah, I want to talk about that, too, because much like the climax of the first movie, we've got him sneaking around the camp, setting up these explosives. The big difference here is that it's during the day instead of, you know, under cover of night. But, and I get that he got these explosives from a weapons cache that was stolen from a hut that Francois had delivered. Mm -hmm. But I'm still, it's a diversion. You know, he, he was able to set up a diversion or one of the, I think it was actually Ho who helped set up the diversion of getting right. into yep. a fight, right, yep. with another worker. So the guards were distracted. I two guards to watch a hut that has like these three giant crates of weapons that Braddock is able to just like, yep, I'll just lift this up and drag it somewhere off into the jungle. Uh, and it's full of these weird bombs that have like the the wily e. coyote style like antenna that you pull out and you press the big red you know beeping button and you blow stuff the up. detonator button yeah that's standard don't you i uh, no, i don't know i it just it just seems like dumb action movie stuff whereas we were kind of kind of making fun of you know from last week like oh all the bombs just happen to go off in sequence but they at least looked like stuff that you would find in <laughs> war yeah. and not in not in like the movie war games <laughs> it's it's very true. Uh, yeah, it, well, see, you could, you could see, I, I'll push back and say that you could see the two guards guarding the hut as a, a little bit of enemy hubris and, and a little bit of them thinking that they've broken all of these guys in camps since they've been there for 10 years. So they don't have to worry about these guys trying to steal the weapons because they have control over them. So they only put two soldiers there because that's all they feel they really need is two there because they've got things well in hand. Um, now, granted, they know Braddock escaped and one other POWs out in the woods escaped. So you would mm -hmm. think maybe they'd beef up security around the weapons cache. But again, they might have a little bit, you know, of, of the old ego of, oh, well, you know, we will be able to handle it regardless. Um, you got to give I, props to Braddock, though. He doesn't take just one crate. He takes all the crates. Mm -hmm. And once again... 10 years in the jungle, he should have been struggling. Like he does. I don't know that he messes up at all in the first missing action, but he wasn't also just like the kind of robotic, perfect killing machine, you know, action star that he was in that movie. In, in this movie, he doesn't screw up. He doesn't really face any adversity. The closest that he comes is uh, trying to find the ropes that Emerson alluded mm -hmm. to, you know, on the rocks. But of course he finds it within like a minute of looking. Uh, everything works out fine. Um, to what you were saying about the guards, I like the hubris angle. I think you could have played it one of two ways. Either 
sp- like just spell that out and have Yen right. talk about like, yeah, Braddock's missing, but you know, w- what's he going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, or you have it a matter of diminished resources. Mm-hmm. Cause like I was saying earlier, I don't know what the power structure is like, you know, in Yin's life, but maybe it's that he would like to put more men on this hut, but he's, you know, several of his people have died and if he asks for any reinforcements, people are going to start asking questions, you know, and he doesn't want to get in trouble. He's like the ultimate badass lording it over these POWs, but maybe he's frightened of forces that are even more terrifying than him. Uh, maybe Braddock gets wind of that and is able to use that against Yin as, you know, his own version of psychological warfare. Again, we're sitting here writing a better movie than the one that we watched. <laughs> Because there are opportunities in places where they could have put these beats, it wouldn't have taken away from this film. It would have added at least enough to where you don't have as much head scratching going on. They could have put a two minute scene of, you know, a radio operator saying, oh, they're trying to get in touch with us again. And you just, you know, and Yin says, we'll just, you know, let them eat static or ignore the message, give Mm. you at least some idea that maybe, which is what I think they were trying to go for with the Francois angle, is that this is a camp that the Vietnamese government or a military may not be aware even still is fully existing. And he's running, like you said, his kind of his own power, you know, his own little utopia Yin is. And that's what the impression I think they were trying to go for is that this isn't a sanctioned camp by the actual government body of Vietnam. This is a camp that's been there and life has moved on, except for everyone except at this camp because Yin is enjoying the powers that he has and he doesn't want to lose that. You know, that's why with Francois, we get that scene where Francois kind of talks back to him in front of Yin's men and then Yin gets Francois by himself and nearly breaks his arm and says, don't you ever freaking talk about, you know, (laughs) you know, so you get the idea. Yin is power hungry and he likes the power he has over the camp, which is why he hasn't killed Braddock or anybody else, because even he's got soldiers and Francois even say, why didn't you just shoot these guys? Why? (laughs) You know, which further, I think, again, it's not presented in the movie. So if you go just by the movie, you will scratch your head as well. But I think it's implied that this isn't a camp that's been kind of forgotten because they're always pushing the idea of your country has forgotten you. The the soldiers, uh, Yin is saying America has forgotten your you soldiers. They've abandoned you altogether. Yet here, sign this agreement, which will then remind people that you're here. Uh, that I didn't quite understand. But um, – <laughs> Maybe he was also trying to ignore the fact that he's been forgotten as well. I think that, you know, I thought that's where you were going when you started talking mm-hmm. a Sorry, second ago. Sorry, I rambled. My apologies. No, no, I but I'm, I'm glad that you that you mm-hmm. got there because that, again, that's a wonderful movie to explore. The missing uh, in-action American soldiers, but also the forgotten people who are running these you know, villages, you know, mm-hmm. you, we've seen this in you know other world conflicts, you know, something ends, but you've got all these outposts where it takes a while for the news to travel. And there's some people who don't want to give up the war right. because maybe they became powerful in this conflict in a way that they weren't beforehand. Not to say that that excuses anything they do in the name of conflict, but it's a great story to tell. Right. And there's opportunity for that. And I think it's very shallowly 
alluded to, but I th- I think that's what they wanted to go for. They just don't have scenes in there to really set that up. Like we talked about, could have had two minutes of dialogue with Captain Ho, so we know at least where he comes from. Whereas everybody was sharing a story, well, I haven't seen my kid, well, I haven't seen whatever. Have Captain Ho say, well, I've been here for this long and I haven't seen my family, whatever, you know, just to give him a little backstory. Same thing with Yin. Have a scene or something to where he's got orders like say beat up orders that say disband the camp and then he, he hides those papers or whatnot. So, you know, something that maybe alludes that he's on his own, which is what I think they wanted to go for. It's just nothing in the film really sets this up that this guy's at, acting on his own, except for again, the opium running with Francois, uh, you know, and that's kind of alluded to that, you know, maybe that's, how he's rogue and on his own that you know the the yin is running his own show without any sanction from the government but you know you know what if yin was i don't know the political or power structure of what was going on in the country at that time but what if the war ended and he came he and a bunch of his friends or fellow compatriots came across this abandoned camp or they discovered some soldiers who were left there, you know, when everyone cut and run because the war was ended or whatever, they left yeah. some prisoners behind. And they're like, let's, we could take this over. We've, we've, look, we've got some military uniforms. We're going to become our own, you know, military dictate out in the middle of nowhere. And we've got these prisoners and leverage and maybe we can work something out. And hey, look, there's a guy named Francois. We can convince him that we're big shots because we have these American mm. prisoners of war. We can get in the opium business. Again, wonderfully rich possibilities i don't know what i'm saying makes any sense but that's what a screenwriter would do we're not we don't get any of that we're just left with yeah head scratching is the phrase of this episode and i think it's (laughs) it's apt as hell yeah and that's the thing is i think if they would have taken a beat and put those scenes in there showing this as a group acting on their own it also in real world may soften a little bit people's criticism of mm. them painting the broad brush about Vietnamese. Because if you just have one scene where these guys are in league with Francois or have some dialogue where they talk about, they took over this camp such and such a time ago for a front for the opium business and have kept these soldiers here as a front and also Yin's yearning for power. You could do maybe a few, and I not big on dis you know, exposition, but still you could throw in two, three minutes of that, maybe a scene or two of this group of individuals posing as soldiers and saying they're taking over for whatever soldiers were actually at the camp. And then at least you have a separation between these soldiers and Vietnam as a whole, but they don't do that. So in the end, in 1985, you're watching this film, you're seeing this portrayal of these guys who are part of dressed as Vietnam, Kong soldiers and generals and everything it paints the broader brush of are you saying all the Vietnamese are still like <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm saying yeah, Whereas, they're, all in, they're all inhuman animals and they, they deserved all the napalm yeah right and again propaganda came up like we mentioned last week you know last week this is another one of those films more so than the last one because yeah, uh, you know, freaking uh, Braddock is even more of of the unstoppable hero than he was in the first one. You know, he's not even flawed. He's not even bothered 
by anything. I mean, the most you get is him getting angry because his buddy got set on fire in front of him. But before that, he was literally playing cool hand Luke the whole time in the camp for like 10 years where he'd be like, no, I'm fine. Yeah, um, not much more to say. There is a great film in here to be had. It's just never taken. Uh, and I am so glad they led with the other film. Now, these, yeah. films, these films were only released, though, three and a half months apart. Whoa! <laughs> In that true, is unheard of. In true canon fashion. In true can- Well, because they shot them back to back, and they had both right. films, and then they found that the second film they liked was better than the first. But, yeah, they were only released within three and a half months of each other. So um, that could be also why uh, the, this second one didn't do so well in the box office is because of uh the fact that it was kind of saturated and and we're talking not as many multiplexes so the first one could have even been out in theaters in some places yeah <laughs> it's a double feature it's a double feature <laughs> so uh yeah it, it's i'm interested to see where braddock is i don't think i've actually seen missing in action three or if i did i totally forgot about it so I'm scared. I'm I'm going to be I, honest. I'm a little nervous. I, I it sounds a little bit like Taken robbed from Missing in Action 3, so we'll see what happens. So because Missing in Action 3 came first, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Um <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh although the write-up on the back of this DVD is a lot better than what you found, uh, but it's still about the same thing. Colonel Braddock Norris returns to Vietnam, but this time it's personal like Jaws. When Braddock discovers that his wife and son are still alive under communist rule, he dons fatigues, loads up weapons, and returns to teach his enemies a lesson in vengeance. Um, I suddenly remember this. So film. many questions. I still, I suddenly remember this film. It will be an interesting co- discussion uh, next week for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least it started off strong, and it makes total sense now why they did what they did. And I'm glad I read this book from Austin <laughs> uh, Trunick. And uh, yeah, so uh, I think we'll wrap it up here, Ian. Uh, well, did did you want to say something about uh, Mr. Trunick? Uh, I I was gonna save it for a little bit, but yeah, I guess I could drop oh. it. I could drop it now. That's fine. Um, I didn't want to blow your lead. I'm sorry. I just oh, way to go. You just. You spoiled it, Ian. You just spoiled it. I'm in the right place. You're in the right place. It is the spoiler room. Yes, uh, folks, in case you're wondering, I do have an interview right now lined up next week with the author of the Canon Film Guide, Austin Trunick. Uh, We hope to get into the spoiler room and I can talk to him about some of the films we've discussed this year, as well as his love for Canon films and the book in general. Uh, I don't normally read books, so this is new territory for me. But nonetheless, if anything, we share a passion, it seems, for canon films. So that, if nothing else, we have some uh, common ground to talk about. But I am looking forward to that discussion. But yeah, look for that next week. Uh, The end of next week, uh, we will have that interview with Austin Trunick of the Canon Film Guide. I'm very excited to talk to him about it and find out about interviews and and what he's got coming up because he is planning for a, a volume two. This is just volume one. Oh, he is working cool. on volume two, and that has some of my favorite Canon films in it, including 
the Alan Quartermain series, which we've talked about on the Spoiler Room in one of our earlier episodes. I forced my Spoiler Room crew to watch the Alan Quartermain films because I adore them so much. I've um, never seen them. I'll have to. I'll have to bone up. Oh, you should. You should check out the Alan Quartermain films, and I'm always up for a revisit. But. Missing in action to the beginning. Uh, glad it wasn't the beginning. Um, <laughs> I did find some entertainment, but this one far more problematic and handled much more carelessly than the first one is what I would say. So definitely watch these in order. Ian, your final thought with this film. I could not sum it up any better than than you just did. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm so glad that you gave me that uh, that history lesson at the beginning of this because so much more makes <laughs> sense it? now. <laughs> Doesn't it? Doesn't yes. it? You, you, knowing that, like I said, I watched the second one and then I boned up and read the chapter in this book on it, and I was reading it, going, "That makes so much sense." <laughs> it just it, it okay that. <laughs> All the pieces kind of clicked that, and then I'm just like, so that's what, okay. And that, if nothing else, shows you why we love and why people are fascinated with the canon group films. is just the history of just this movie, and there's so much other stuff that I've been reading up. And, and, and you know what? That's why people pick on me sometimes. Oh, why are you covering only indie stuff or B-movies and that? I'm like... Because I've found, especially when they do like behind the scenes stuff, there's so much richer stories behind like the B movies and the the lower, quote unquote, lower tier films than from the big studios. There are some really interesting stories there, far more than I think that some of the making of of the big blockbuster films. Well, I mean, you convinced me to to track down a copy of the Canon Film Guide for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. It's got all kinds of great stuff in here, including Breakin. They talk about Breakin in this one, which was Canon's biggest film. This was second biggest. Uh, the first, of all time? The first mission. Yeah, for Missing in Action, the first one that we talked about last week was their second biggest all time film, if I read it correctly. Uh, at least up until 84, uh, uh, Breakin was actually their biggest, which is understandable because breakdancing was huge back then. And maybe sometime I'll spin the platter of Breakin' 2 electric, uh, Breakin', no, the original Breakin' soundtrack I do own. So I have that. So <laughs> so was Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo actually a prequel to Breakin' where they're breakdancing in Vietnam? <laughs> no, but now I, I suddenly want to see that film. Uh, <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Our bit of ramblings on Missing in Action 2, the beginning. Um yeah, it's it's just wild, and especially reading up, and I, I'm trying not to shill too much, but I just, it's just one of the things. I've read other stories about other B-films and that stuff, like for Full Moon and that. You read about some of the things that go on to get these films out in front of people. The stories are wild, and, and you, you should seek them out because uh, I think there's a lot of interesting meat. And in, like, the cases here, sometimes the... Uh, backstory is far more interesting than the front story of these films <laughs> that's that's a lovely turn of phrase yeah well <laughs> the backstory yeah, is more interesting than the front, front story. story well there was some front story going on with uh captain ho as well and the two uh prostitutes that visited the the camp so there was that um gratuitous uh 
Okay, we're going to stop because I'm just, just about to bring up the fact that we have a classic example of nudity for the sake of nudity. Uh, if we didn't have it in Missing in Action, we definitely have it here. Well, the, the nudity in this movie was you know expected but it's nothing compared to the 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 random from from last week the random just flash of tits as the girls propped up on the bar <laughs> but it was only a brief it was only briefly though versus that kind of makes one. it worse it <laughs> makes it worse i was like tits <laughs> what Get no, out of here. No, I want to go through. <laughs> I want to go through a bunch of movies, and every time, every time there's just the gratuitous topless scene, you just have the word "tits" over it, and you have some guy just yell "tits." <laughs> just edit movies like that, dude. That's just how I watch movies. It gets a little awkward in public screenings, though. I, I, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Basic Instinct was really awkward watch. That was a that was a different word. Anyway. <laughs> But anyway, yes. So, uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I will say that, and let's see if this is going to work. Even though we have another Braddock film, this film is one of the ones that was voted on. So, therefore, tonight, Ian gets to fire the cannon for our uh, cannon fodder film. Actually, uh, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> can't tease me like that uh, because I don't have my list up <laughs> bear with me one moment I just, it, the, uh, tonight's gone a little weird anyway but was um, was was Freddy got fingered a canon film no, no my <laughs> god there, you, I, I knew it I knew, you know what's funny is I heard the back of my head Freddy got fingered I, I heard it and then I was like no, and then I was like, I'm not going to bring it up. And then it it came up, and now you mentioned it. You're as bad as my kid and his mention of Big Wheel. Um, that Look, <laughs> every every episode until you oh, watch no. that movie with me. Oh, no. <laughs> that is my promise no, to no, you. No, no really, no. you're gonna no. make me watch it. I, I'll watch it again for you. I I would watch it again, okay? Uh, I I would do that. Uh, let me see. <laughs> let me try to pull up the Canon uh, film list again. I'm sorry. I thought I had this ready, uh, but it just got so busy. Okay, let's see. Where did I leave off on? Uh, I don't have it with me. You might have to wait till next week to fire the Canon. We um, could do that. It's 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 a great way to to send off the Canon, the Chuck Norris, the Ch- Chuck Norris. Uh, trilogy from canon well oh no you know what i have it here oh hey i have it here it just took me a little bit so let's see uh this is yeah this is april so this is month four so yeah we do have eight eight left so uh ian if you would like to fire the canon pick a number now this time one through eight pick a random number uh to quote rodney dangerfield in back to school Four? <laughs> and you picked number four and you hit? Oh. You'll be happy you pulled the cannon. Death Wish 3. <laughs> you just, you, you hit the, uh, Death, Death Wish 3 is is next month folks so very... i've actually seen the first 
I think I've seen the first two Death Wish movies. Yes, I have, but I didn't see Death Wish three. This well, will be good. Well, that'll be that'll be exciting. See, I'm expanding your horizons with <clears throat> Death Wish three, which was a canon film, and uh, that's part of the uh, three film movie I got at Dollar Tree. So I'm happy. So because <laughs> <laughs> I've got that. Check out my uh, shameless plug. Check out my uh, hoarding video. Well, not hoarding. My haul video of Dollar Tree where I mentioned what I got. Uh, so now, with that in mind, we are licensed to shill for our good friend Ian. As always, the floor is yours, sir. Please shill away. Well, I'm Ian Simmons. I run Kicking the Seat, which you can find at kickseat.com. You can also find me, um, sorry, eructating into the microphone um, to uh, at uh, youtube.com slash uh, just look up the Kicking the Seat YouTube channel. I put up uh, several videos a week there, roundtable uh, reviews, interviews, uh, series like the uh, the ones we're doing right now for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Fridays, which unfortunately, Mark, you may not be able to join us for this week, but you have an excellent reason, yeah. uh, and we'll just have to catch you next week for the finale. But for those who can join, uh, we do a roundtable with Earth's Mightiest Critics talking about Falcon and Winter Soldier, 8.30 p.m. Central Time for about an hour uh, every Friday night. Uh, it's the penultimate episode this week, so it'll be fun. And remember, folks, if you find yourself erectating into the microphone for more than four hours, contact your doctor. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and make sure the make sure the camera is not on. <laughs> make sure the camera is not on for your erecting. No, uh, great stuff, Ian. As always, it's fun to be on the show. I do apologize for not making it this week, but yeah, uh, it is trivia. It's you know you you got to be there for the team. So, um, but I I do look forward to the finale, and interested to see the way. Uh, the second last episode is going to play out though. Again, uh, it's probably good. I'm not on there because I'll probably be doing a lot of this just feels like they're ripping off civil war and you don't need me to be a downer on your show for that. So uh... you're going to be kicking yourself when there's like five trivia questions about the new episode of Falcon and winter soldier. <laughs> no, no, the questions are already done. So it would have been for previous episodes, not to say that he won't ask questions about WandaVision that thanks. Ooh to uh watching your show being part of a couple episodes as well as finding interest in it uh yeah that should be fun so there you have it folks enough rambling tonight thank you so much for listening hope you enjoy this next month is death wish three but we still have another canon film on deck and that is braddock missing in action three because i'm a completionist and what the hell we've got the other two might as well do this one so <laughs> there you have it folks thank you and i would just say a good night everyone good night Hey everyone, we hope you enjoyed our show. If you would like to get access to exclusive Spoiler Room content, stop on by our Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you will get access to VIP episodes, hear the discussions we have before our episodes, and a whole lot more. With your support, we can continue to provide the quality content you've come to expect. Thank you again for listening to The Spoiler Room, where the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies.